0: Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses. World with World War II gave us writing for Gotto and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's Happy Hour. She leaned across to me and she said, "One day, you know, you'll be doing that." Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. I went to the ABC and auditioned. I was so fit at
1: the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup.
2: I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places.
0: If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it.
2: I hope I've been entertaining, that's yeah.
0: all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and as are you.
0: Yeah, it's a date.
2: <laughs> it's a date.
0: Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to the Stages podcast. Conversations with creatives about career, craft, and what matters to them. How are you doing? Times are tough at present, and COVID's ugly presence has had considerable impact on our artistic community. From the arrival of the virus in 2020, it has ravaged the economy and craft of our artistic sectors. We should be midway through Opera Australia's production of The Tales of Hoffman. But sadly, like many productions who were gracing our stages, or about to, the production had to be postponed to a future season due to the New South Wales government's extended stay-at-home orders in Sydney. Opera Australia's devastating announcement occurred about a week after I recorded with opera superstar Jessica Pratt. He was in town to sing all the female leads in this brand-new production, crafted by celebrated director Damiano Micheletto. Jessica Pratt has been hailed by the New York Times as a soprano of gleaming sound, free and easy high notes, agile coloratura runs and lyrical grace. She is considered one of today's foremost interpreters of some of Bel Canto's most challenging repertoire. Jessica is an extraordinary talent and it was a treat to share this hour with her. Though recorded prior to the postponement of the opera, it is essential that we feature this conversation today to mark what would have been the tales of Hoffman season and also to celebrate a truly great artist. Jessica Pratt, I have to say good evening and thank you so much for joining us in this episode. I am so thrilled that uh, you can be part of it. And I should let the listeners know that we're recording this at 7pm at night after you've had a, a full day of rehearsal.
1: Well, actually, it wasn't it wasn't a full day today because, um, you know, with the lockdown and everything else, we're, today I just had a costume fitting in the end. <laughs> so it was a full two, two hours. Full two-hour day of costume fitting. <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't
0: feel so bad then.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. It was supposed to be a full 2 hours rehearsal, but uh, yeah, it's all a bit complicated at the moment.
0: You're back in Australia, of course, um, preparing for The Tales of Hoffman, uh, which is at the Opera House in August, uh, playing four of the, yeah. the roles. Um, does that make you four times as exhausted?
1: Uh, I would say twice as exhausted as a regular opera. As a you know most most of the roles i sing tend to be quite long heavy roles so it's not too bad um but i would say it's on par with you know an uncut day, which is five and a half hours um this one uncut is a good four four and a half hours wow uh, depending on who's watching uh, but it's uh here we're, we've you know shortened it a bit so the audience won't get terribly annoyed <laughs>
0: <laughs> olympia antonia Julietta, and stella do you have a favorite
1: Antonia, because she, it, the music is so beautiful, it really takes you away. It's something else.
0: Is she? Is she the doll? Is she the doll song?
1: No, the doll is the first one. Olympia. Olympia right. is. A, well, I mean, Olympia. I don't really see it as much of a role because she just has an aria and a little bit of ensemble, and that's it. So. It's it's more the the bulk of the of the work in the evening is is Antonia and it's also Giulietta. Giulietta has quite, quite a big duet with Hoffman. And in this particular production, uh, we're reinserting the, the coloratura area for Giulietta because originally when Hoffman wrote the opera, he wrote it for one coloratura soprano, but he died before the opening night. And the soprano and the theater decided it was too long and they cut the Giulietta act completely the music got lost and the whole act was only rediscovered in 1992 i think it was wow and so it's actually not been available and in in its stead a lot of theaters and impresarios at the time rewrote the juliet act with bits that remain bits that they could find they added new pieces um the septet for example is a a piece not written by Offenbach, the same for the um, Schintelanti Diamanti, which is one of the most famous pieces. So, I mean, it's a really peculiar opera in that there are certain pieces we really don't want to let go of because they're great Mm -hmm. (laughs) and we really associate them with Hoffman, but they weren't written by Offenbach. They were written to his music. um, So, you know, they do have, (laughs) you know, his tunes. Um, But yeah, it's, it's quite a fascinating score. With its with its history, yeah.
0: so bits of the score have been grafted onto an existing score.
1: Yeah, basically they they had I think they had bits of the Julieta act, and then they thought, well, let's make a big finale using the Barcarolle for the septet. So that was you know quoting the Barcarolle, Chintilanti Diamante quotes something else in another opera of, of Offenbach, uh, and Julietta was without an aria, but then when they discovered the actual music, for example, the duet with Hoffman is the same. A lot of the rest, it is pretty similar. So they obviously did have bits and pieces, but the aria was missing completely. They just had a very simplified version and, uh, and usually gets cut. So we brought back in the, the really super hard version, which I think I remember reading the soprano at the time when Offenbach wrote it said, no, it's too hard.
0: <laughs> is there must, much offstage time between characters?
1: Uh, in this particular production, there is because we have big set changes. So we shall have an interv- interval between uh, Olympia and Antonia and an interval between Antonia and Giulietta, which is really nice. Um, occasionally, it's done with just the one interval between Antonia and Julietta, which is a little bit, you know, it's not too bad, but, you know, I think it, I think the piece needs the space as well. I think, you know, you need a lot of mental break between these acts.
0: Characters that would uh, require lots of costume, lots of wigs, uh, lots of different looks. Costume
2: changing looks, I guess.
0: <laughs> uh, how um, important? Oh, well, they're very important to establish character, wigs, costumes, etc. But um, you've got to be comfortable as the singer to perform in that wig and and be able to move in that in that costume. Do you have much of a say in in the um, the look of the costume? No. The, form of the costume, the the wigs, no this is it. one
1: tries <laughs> <laughs> one tries to make suggestions <laughs> it really depends on the situation of course um you know uh, the, the costume department here is lovely and you know i would say you know i need a bit more space in the chest because uh when singers well when i sing uh i open the you know the ribs by about three to four centimeters. So I need that space. I can't have something that's tight across my torso, the upper part of my torso more than anything else. Um, And the other problem is skirts. Very often I'll go to the theater and they'll make a skirt that fits me. And I say, well, it has to be attached to the top of the dress because I expand also my waist when I sing. And if I expand it and you fit it to that, when I take a breath, the skirt falls off. So it takes. Sometimes it, I actually have to get to the dress rehearsal, and the skirt has to fall off for them to understand that I'm. I really mean it, <laughs>
2: <laughs> and that
1: has happened.
2: Yes.
1: Uh, but you know, generally, now I manage to get everybody to attach the skirts to the tops and everything else that we need. Um, and movement is another thing. You know, when you get on stage and you see what the the regista in English is, a stage director wants, then. I'll be in a fitting and I'll say, OK, but can I just now crawl on the floor, kneel down, lie down and see if the, the costume is movable and also if it looks OK? Because sometimes you might have a costume that looks great standing still. But as soon as you start doing all the movements, it sort of goes all over the place. So there are a lot of things. But I mean, in a place like Sydney, that's not really an issue because there's great, you know, costume department here. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, at least. <laughs> at least here it's good.
0: <laughs> uh, they're very important considerations, yeah, because uh, you need to feel comfortable. and
1: um, You don't want to be thinking about the skirt falling down while you're singing an F or something. You know? <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, Jessica, I read that you, as a child, you had career aspirations to be a, a veterinarian.
1: I did, yes.
0: Yeah, And you're vegetarian as well? I am, yep. Yeah. yeah, so I would assume a great love of animals.
1: Indeed, a great love of animals. Um, and we have at home with my husband, we have uh, three dogs and two cats right now and counting. It, it goes up and down depending on whatever I encounter on, on my travels. Um, but yeah, thankfully I found a, a man who's as much in love with animals as I if not more in love with animals than I am. So he's very supportive of my inability to leave stray animals <laughs> on the street
0: oh that's good yes yeah, so i was going to ask with your you know extensive uh, commitments all around the world whether you had uh, the time and the, the space for animals but um i guess they're always there like family waiting to greet you when you're home
1: they are i used to travel with my two little dogs before i met my husband but um you know we have a house in the countryside in florence and it has a lot of acreage and The house is big and my dogs pretty much made it quite clear that they thought it would be better if they just stayed at home from now on. (laughs) (laughs) And I'd feel a bit mean forcing them to come and, you know, travel around and stay in little hotel rooms when they can run around and, you know, they're very happy there. So, yeah. So
0: you're now now based in Italy, of course.
1: Yeah, I've been based there for about 15 years.
0: Right. And you moved there for for study originally, was it? Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Gianluigi Gelmetti heard me singing in a competition here in Sydney and he invited me to the Rome Opera to watch the, well, just watch the operas for like six months. Um, So I went over there and I called up the Opera House and I said, I'm here for the Young Artist Program. And they promptly told me there wasn't a Young Artist Program. (laughs) And so I said, well, (laughs) Gianluigi Gelmetti invited me here and they said, oh, he's not here, call back in a few weeks. So I, you know, Back in a few weeks, and and he's from the other end of the room. Oh, il eh, vieni. And so, you know, I went into the theater and he said, Okay, well, you're just gonna follow me around and watch the shows and learn. So I did. I watched all the rehearsals, all the, you know, musical rehearsals, the singers. It was incredible. And I was really lucky because the first opera I saw was Tancredi of Rossini with um, Marielle de Villa and uh, Raul Jimenez and uh, Daniela Barcelona and it was really awesome which and is ho- awesome you were hooked i was more than hooked i was waking up in the middle of the night singing Dío." still my favorite piece
0: <laughs> from, from kangaroo
1: <laughs> see he still he still calls me the Kanguru. i don't think he's ever learned my name <laughs> we were both singing we were both working in genova a few years ago and i, I was doing a lucien i think he was doing tristan and old or something like that and he sent one of his, um, his young conductors up to, to tell, tell me to come down and say hello. <laughs> so I came down. Oh, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was born in England, yeah. And I'd also gone over to Italy a few years before to learn Italian, and I swore I would never go back. I hated the country, and I found them so rude. And, uh, and that was it. I was like, I'm never going back there. And so when when Gianluigi told me, you know, said come to Italy, I was like, well, don't know. And uh, turns out I got over that, and now I really love it and wouldn't want to live anywhere else. So, you yeah, know, things change.
0: What what was it that changed you? Do you think was it falling in love?
1: No, absolutely not. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, it was just no. It's just no. I only met my husband four years ago. Um, I was there. I think I just learnt more about the culture and and how they are because they do all sorts of things that for an anglo-saxon especially an english anglo-saxon is offensive you know like for example my husband when he wants me to stop speaking he just puts his hand in front of my face oh no <laughs> i know right <laughs> that's so rude <laughs> <to the> hand. <laughs> or I, yeah exactly just uh, it just does that which they all do you know and, and it used to really upset me when i first when i was like oh my god and um and the other thing he does is when I say um, when I ask him a question like, "Do you want dinner?" He goes, and I'm like, "Yes or no." <laughs> that's that's the response. And he's the other that, day, standing
0: like kangaroo.
1: <laughs> I know. <right? laughs> and the other day, I actually did it back to him. Like he asked me something, I'm, and he said, "You did it! You did it!" <laughs> so I've clearly been there too long now. Yeah, I also parked on the, on the sidewalk the other day, like the other day, a couple of months ago when I was going to the bank, there were no parking spaces, I just parked the car on the sidewalk and <laughs> walked in and I got out, I looked at the car and I was like, mm, I've been here too long.
0: <laughs> <laughs> How did you tackle the the, the language situation? Because I imagine you didn't have much Italian when you first went there.
1: No, I had no Italian when I went there and um, I actually asked Gianluigi if I could, because I was going to rehearsal, I would go to the theatre before everybody and I would leave after everybody. So I was there 12, 15 hours a day, every day. And I remember meeting him one day and saying, you know, asking if I could take some time off to study Italian. And he looked at me and he said, no, you will learn Italian in the theatre. And I said, okay. I wasn't much of a fighter, I was like, okay. And uh, so I came back to, to Australia and I remember I was um, with Nicole Dorigo, who's the also the coach here with the French and the Italian at, at Sydney Opera House. And she was my coach at the time and I was singing um, Donna Anna. And I was singing forze, forze un giorno. Because in Rome they say forze and forza and it's forze and forza, there's no T-S. But I was convinced because, you know, she, she corrected me and I said, no, no, Nicole, I've just spent six months in Rome. It's the capital of Italy. You say Forza. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, now I know. Now I know because, you know, my husband's a Napolitan. I've lived in Como. I've lived in, uh, I live now in Florence. So I've heard all the different accents and, you know, sort of mentally got over that.
0: Yes, <laughs> different regions would have subtle uh, differences. In they have massive
1: differences yeah. they're almost completely the dialects are like a different language entirely um, I can do very well with Rom- Romano because that's what I actually learned I learned Romano I didn't learn Italian I learned the Roman dialect because that's what the stagehands were talking you know they were talking in the Roman dialect um, the same with the Napolitan I can understand the Napolitan dialect which doesn't really sound that much like Italian the the, the one from Bari, I will never understand because that's all consonants and no vowels. It's just, it's like, a, it's impossible. I don't think I'll ever get that. I got the Venetian one. I managed to understand the Venetian one, but that took me quite a while. And and the Comascan, I couldn't really understand. The really pure Comascan from the mountains is just like another, it really is another language. But every region has their own own dialect and they are quite separate languages. Sure, not They're based in Italian, but they're, very particular.
0: Jessica, you are acknowledged alongside uh, Melba and Sutherland uh, a lot. Does that um, excite you or fill you with dread?
1: Neither. (laughs) 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 I mean, I admire Sutherland and Melba a lot, not just for the massive, massive work ethic that they had, um, I think that's something that actually singles out Australian singers in general. They tend to have a really big work ethic. And I don't know whether it's because we're on an you know on a continent away from the rest of the world, and we feel like you know maybe we especially at that time, maybe they compared themselves with the this the recordings that arrived, and they said, well, that's the standard I have to get to before I go there. I'm not sure what it is, but you know, if you compare them to other people of their era, they, they didn't have necessarily the kind of determination and and work ethic that these these two women had. And it was incredible. I mean, hmm. the things that Alba went through in Paris was impressive that she kept going. Um, and, of course, they had great voices and they were called sort of Sopranos. I mean, I'm just glad I'm not Greek and dark-haired, quite frankly.
0: <laughs> there would be <laughs> another one. If be... you are just... Jessica- you are Jessica Pratt, aren't you? And uh,
2: I am <laughs>
0: your own, your own person. I, I guess um, the thing that you do have in common with Melba and Sutherland is that uh, you were the only Australian after them to have been invited to sing Lucia de Lammermoor and Milan.
1: I was, and I had an easier time of Melba. I can tell you that they tried to chase her out of town. Oh, why? She, was, she was because they were jealous. They, they tried to get her away. She got all these death threats. They said, don't do it, don't uh, don't debut at La Scala, we're going to poison your food, all sorts of things. She actually didn't eat outside for, I think, a week or something before the, the performance. But then she did it, and it was a massive success. You know, I think sometimes we think we have a hard time with the audience in Italy nowadays, but it's nothing like it was before.
0: Yeah. There are very... Um demonstrative audience aren't they they
1: uh, yeah. <laughs> <always know. laughs> they let you know they think in the moment and for years afterwards
0: <laughs> in the moment so middle of performance can uh, you sometimes get a reaction yeah
1: all the time yeah in positive and negative so um i think the worst i ever saw was early in my career i was in um, bergamo and we had a puritani And it was a a difficult situation because the tenor had been sent away and we had this new uh, critical edition with a trio that wasn't really sung and they called the tenor at the last minute and it just all went from bad to worse and and the audience was catcalling within about 10 minutes of the opera starting and they just kept going the whole way through and, you know, they were yelling out things like, you know, which is, you know, shame on you and we want our money back and go home and, uh, it was just like, and, um, and then I got to the, the finale of Vienna Tempio, and I have to start again, and they all started arguing between themselves, you know, because some people were saying be quiet, other people were booing, and, uh, and, I, and it was, I think, my second ever opera. And I looked at the conductor, I'm like, what do I do? Do I wait for them to calm down or do I sing above them? I don't know. And in the end, I just started above them. You know, I just sang over them. Um, So, yeah, I mean, they weren't booing me, um, (laughs) if that's any (laughs) consolation, but it does disturb everybody. Like the orchestra gets nervous, the chorus gets nervous. Of course, the singer that's getting booed really has a hard evening. And, and I've seen really unfair booing as well, even in Spain, you know, where they've just decided that they don't like the, you know, one of my colleagues. And the whole night they just boo them every time they go on stage. And I don't, like, there's a lot of weird things that go on, you know, between other singers. <laughs> Fun, funny things happen over there, uh, but yeah. yeah
0: sounds like a We've had situations
1: for- where the police, the police have been called, you know. I mean, I remember um, somebody telling me about a story that had happened a few years back, I won't mention, where there was a festival. And then the, the booing was so severe that um, they already had police on site because they thought that they wouldn't like the staging of the opera um, because it was quite political. And there was a fight broke out in the audience and the police came in and they you know pulled some people out and they sat one one of them down a young guy he was probably in his 30s i think it was and they said to him you know you got to calm down it's just an opera you know it's just a just a staging he's like the staging it's not the staging it's the soprano that's annoying me like, it was just, <laughs> they get so upset it's like a personal thing so, yeah, but in the other other hand, they get as, as enthusiastic as they do upset, you know, so it's also very rewarding. But I had quite a strong following of <laughs> the, the really like football fan type public um, and still do throughout most of my career. But in the beginning of my career, I remember my colleagues would look at me and they'd be like, Jessica, are they coming from Parma? Are they coming from Milan? Because they would come in buses. They'd just get like two buses and they'd go wherever I sang. and my. Co- Colleagues will be like "Eh," (laughs) hating on me. I'm like, I can't tell them not to come. Like I can't do that. (laughs) I mean, what am I supposed to do? Dude, just practice.
0: Jessica, what does the role (laughs) of uh, Lucia mean to you?
1: It's a very important role to me because it was the first role I ever sang. Um, It was how I debuted in opera uh, in Como. And uh, I sang it a lot everywhere. Um, I tend to sing it about two to three times a year. Um, I think it's over 40 productions now in 12 years, which is quite a lot. it's fun because there aren't many productions out there I haven't done. Like I'm like, oh, done that one, done that one, done that one. <laughs> there are a couple I haven't ticked off yet. So, you know, German German houses.
0: <laughs> Do you have a favorite house? <laughs> it's a great role. Do you have a favorite house around the world that you've played in?
1: Oh, uh, there are a lot of different favorite ones for different reasons. I tend to get most nervous when I sing in Sydney because I think, you know, I grew up and had my teenage years here. So I get definitely get the most worked up about productions here. Um, I love Naples, San Carlo, because it's the biggest antique theatre in Europe and it's gorgeous. And also it's where my husband's from, so all my in-laws are there and all their friends and I just love being in Naples. Um, I love Maggio Musicale because I feel very, very close to the orchestra in Florence where I live. Um, The orchestra and chorus for me are, you know, it's like family there. Uh, And I had that relationship with others theatres in the past where I was working very frequently and so there are some theatres that yeah I really have a strong personal connection to but more to the orchestra than anything else or their chorus.
0: Travelling around the world um, you would have to be very careful I would imagine Uh, things like jet lag and um, picking up colds and flus along the way. Um, As an opera singer you're really an athlete aren't you? You're you're an Olympian. Um how do you look after yourself when when you're traveling on those those long flights?
1: Well, with the long flights, it's a question of you know hydration more than anything else, just making sure I have, you know, saline nasal drops, so I just sneak into the bathroom every hour and drip all, all over my nose. Um that actually helps a lot. I recommend it. Highly recommended. Fest nasal spray is also great. Just a plain salt water is fine. Um I don't take any medications. I don't take painkillers. You can't take painkillers when you're, um, when you're a singer, because it, you know, it thins the blood. And so when, when I'm singing super high notes, it's quite natural that the chords might get a little bit bruised, but if I was to take like, um, you know, an ibuprofen, then the bruise could get very big because you know you bruise more when you're having something like that so it means that you know <laughs> if i have a headache i just have to just ignore it and keep singing and uh, and if i'm sick then basically my only remedy is the honey water and ginger boiled up <laughs> that's it um yeah so basically that's what i do try to keep it all natural and when i'm working obviously i have to be very careful about anything that creates reflux because that's something that singers tend to struggle with especially after a decade of work because the, um, the muscles, don't, you know, stop their gastric juices coming back up and get loose with all the movement we use. And so that's always an issue. So I will avoid anything that would cause reflux while I'm singing. When I'm at home, which is very rarely, um, except for the last year, then I'll, you know, drink like a fish and eat cheese. And <laughs> I'm pretty sure my housekeeper thinks I'm a wild drunk because i is drink a bottle of wine with my husband when i'm home for the week and then i go off to work and i don't touch any alcohol for six months straight because i can't i can't do that and sing so you know, drink three litres of water a day and all that kind of thing and i have to do a lot of physical exercise like you know breathing exercises for a good 20 minutes a day just just breathing exercises uh and then the vocalises just vocalises and then the practice and then i have to build up the stamina so it's you know it's a lot of work it was nice to drop the ball for a year.
0: Yeah. As a singer, you obviously have to be aware of uh, anatomy also and and how it all works inside.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. And also you have to avoid tension, you know, especially tension is the enemy of good sound. So I've recently discovered Pilates is really helpful because it helps the core and also just helps you, I don't know, I have a tendency to sort of grab my shoulders up and so it really is helping me just to relax the shoulders a bit and that's been a new discovery. I also did a lot of Alexander technique when I was younger and Feldenkrais is another thing that really helps mm. with singing.
0: Yeah, great. A big fan of Pilates. I, lo- I love it. It's um, opera-
1: amazing. I've never tried it until this last month. And uh, are, you, are,
0: you on, are you on the Reformer?
1: Yes. <laughs> I love that, that machine.
0: It's like- Torturous but so good. Yes, it's like <laughs> exercising and you can lay down.
1: Yeah, I know, but it burns. It hurts so bad. I had an instruction. She's like, "Is it burning?" And I'm like, "Yeah." And she's like, "But the good burn." And I'm like, "I don't think there is a good burn, but yes, that burn." She's like, "Good, push, push more, more." I'm like,
0: oh. "Jessica, opera narratives are often defined by joy and love and and tragedy." Uh, Those moments of of joy and love are hopefully uh, easy to access. But how do you deal with the darker moments that you have to play, like like Lucia, for for instance? How do you keep yourself emotionally available but also safe?
1: I don't. I can't. So um, what I do is in a rehearsal space, I won't put the emotion into the role, so I'll go through the paces. And I don't usually connect with my colleagues. I don't look them in the eyes, I've re- realised later on. <laughs> I didn't realise this before, but I don't I don't connect visually with my colleagues usually until the general when I know nobody's going to stop me. And if I do get stopped in a general rehearsal, it's really hard for me to not smash something. Like I, I really, <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> excuse me i'm experiencing like this i'm screaming bloody murder right now and you're like i'm sorry my violin's broken i don't care but uh yeah so i have to be really careful not to lose it um yes that's what i do i just get everything out and then i'm completely exhausted the next day and if i go out the next day i tend to faint so i don't go out i just stay home and takes about a day and then i'm okay yeah. Um but I discovered that it's not with every role that I'm so destroyed the next day it's with the the tragic roles because I was I remember one day I fainted after uh, a and I thought I'd be okay because I went out with a tenor to just for a light walk. He said, oh, let's go and see this thing. And there's a nice park close by. So I went and on the way back, I fainted and I had to find, I was looking for a little corner in Venice to faint privately. And, uh, and two guys that were doing another show that I knew that were singers, they were like, Jessica, what are you doing over there? They just like found me in the corner in a piazza. And they're like, I'm like, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm not feeling so great. Can't quite get home, so <laughs> they like, come here, and they basically like the two of them walked me home, and so there I learned my lesson: do not go out the day after a show, um, unless it's you know. Now I can because my husband's there, so I'll just go with my husband, and he does the talking, and I just sewn you know, out. Um, so yeah, they take a lot of recovery, but uh, physical and mental. But the um, the one I didn't have an issue with, for example, is uh, was Armida. I thought that would be even harder because it's such a long role. But there's not really a point where she's sad or, you know, beaten upon. Because I think during the whole performance, I'm cowering with some of these roles, like physically. And I think you you know, the body's sickly state joins and your body really thinks you're under attack you know especially when you're doing it in rehearsal for a month you're constantly in this position your body learns that there's something wrong because you are being thrown on the floor and you're afraid and you're afraid and uh, so yeah but then i did armida and i got up the next day went outside was fine because she gets it all out she's just angry yeah.
2: <laughs> it's, it's
1: cool <laughs> And there's a lot there is a lot of throwing on the ground as well. You know, there's a lot of beating and you don't always get colleagues that know how to theatrically throw you on the ground. Sometimes they literally just throw you against a wall or throw you on the ground and it hurts and I'm covered in bruises often and fingerprints. I have so many colleagues who do not understand that they, 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 they grab you and they just imprint their fingers on you. Um, because they haven't been taught that they just have to act. <laughs> then okay. I do the fall. It's an and illusion. I, yeah, yeah, it's an illusion. And sometimes I have to say to them, look, you know, just the direction I will make it believable, but I will make it believable, not you. And uh and so that's fine now. But in the beginning I wasn't really, you know, I was I didn't really stand up for myself, so I didn't say things like that. Um, now I'm just like, uh, uh, that's not happening. <laughs> I'm too old for that now. Um, but uh, I remember doing uh, chiropractic. I went to chiro- chiropractic years ago in Milan, and he looked at my x rays and he <laughs> looked at me and he's like, Were you in a car accident? And I said, I'm sorry, what do you mean? I said, No. And he said, Ah, oh, so you've been in an abusive relationship? And I said, No. And he's like, it's okay, you can tell me. I can see it on the x-rays. It's years and years of, of damage. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, I can see many falls, many, you know, hits. And, and I was like, oh no, I'm an opera singer. I'm, that's my job. That's my job. <laughs> that's what I do for a job. And he was like, oh, okay. I don't think you really believed me, but well.
0: Opera singer slash stunt woman.
1: Yeah, exactly. You learn, you learn how to fall quite quickly. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I went down the, the rabbit hole of YouTube last night, um, thoroughly indulging in many of your performances. And it is apparent that not only are you a great singer, you're a great actor. As part of your preparation, oh, do you have drama lessons or acting lessons?
1: I did in the past. That was the main thing I concentrated on uh, more than the singing, was actually drama. I did uh, some, I, well, I started an arts degree as, you know, majoring in acting. And I studied privately here with the Sydney Theatre Company, a youth theatre company, I think it was called, with Anthony Scoos, And it was the main thing for me because I think it's the thing I like the most, well, you know, one of the things I like the most about opera is being, going into new musicals, but also going into interpreting other characters, living other lives, you know, and expressing the tragedies of these women. And, they're really important to me, you know, I, I've connect to these women a lot. And I feel like it's really important to, uh, get their stories out. I think the whole point of art is to sort of make people reflect and, and think, you know, if you treat people in a certain way, there's, there's a consequence. And this is the consequence, you know, just putting that up in front of people, making them hopefully become a little bit more empathetic.
0: I was delighted to learn also that uh, you're now a dessert.
1: I am, <laughs> yes. Maggie made a beautiful dessert.
0: Maggie beer and la dolce Jessica.
1: Yeah, la dolce Jessica. <laughs> so I actually had it. I had it made for my wedding, and it was served at my wedding as well.
0: <laughs> okay. So there's something to to add to the menu of, of peach melba and uh, and pavlova.
1: No, Jessica, <laughs> three of us now.
0: Jessica, as as in your youth as a girl, um, did you study any other instruments, or was voice the only?
1: uh... Yeah, no, no. I studied the piano, percussion, the trumpet, a little bit of um, tuba, but not very well, and a little bit of clarinet because my sister was playing the clarinet. I couldn't do the, the trombone though; that was my brother's instrument. I thought that was a bit complicated. (laughs) <laughs> but I did a good tenure years the trumpet. Um, I played it throughout high school and I started at seven. So, so I love the trumpets. I'm my favorite instrument.
0: So music was a great uh, presence in your childhood.
1: Yes, my dad is a tenor and a conductor. So we would basically spend all the weekends at the community, center where he conduct he conducted an orchestra and there and i would just sort of play with my brother and sister around the stage and we'd listen to rehearsals and i think that's why when i'm in a theater i feel the most at home because we moved around a lot when i was younger and the only real constant was the theater and so when i get into a theater i have this sense of calm that i don't have anywhere else except in nature i have it in nature as well
0: well, you know, some of those forests, uh, etc., can be nature's theatre, can't they? Yeah, they, they
1: are can they? Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: And theatres are like cathedrals. They're our churches, aren't they?
2: Exactly.
0: Do you have a, a favourite location in a theatre? Do you enjoy the wings? Uh,
1: backstage.
0: Backstage, yeah, Especially yeah. when it goes oh, on.
1: under the stage, the wings, backstage, above the stage. If I can sneak up there, not so easy anymore, but <laughs> I used to do that a lot when I was younger.
0: Who were the vocalists that you were listening to um, in your
1: youth? Um, Carlos, I think, was the first I ever really, you know, sat up to and listened. Um, Obviously I was watching my dad because he would sing in in the opera in Opera Queensland and and in England as well before we left. And so I would watch, I think I watched the Lucia that, that they did because I remember very clearly the Lucia falling upside down on the stairs when she died. And from that point on, I was like, oh, I have to do that. Okay. And I would get on the couch and practice singing upside down <laughs> with my head on the floor. Um, and I ended up doing that production and I could do the, I could do the head upside down thing. I was very proud. It took, you know, well, I don't know 25 years <laughs> since seeing it and actually doing it. But I could do it when I, when I was asked, I was ready. I'd seen it, but yeah, no, those and and in Italy, like uh, Mariella de Villa, as I said, she's, she's incredible and uh, caballero and uh, Sills, I love Beverly Sills as well. Well, the, you know, the great combinatorians really. Anik Massis, amazing singer.
0: When did you discover that your voice might be something special?
1: Um, I don't think I really did. I mean, I remember when I was a child, you know, bumping down the stairs and listening, I always used to hide on the stairs and listen to my dad's singing lessons that he'd give. And I remember quite clearly, He was asking the singer to sing a note, and I sang it, but I would have only been about six or seven. And I sang the note, and he turned around, opened the door, and he said, she's going to be a great singer. And I thought, I think when you say that to a child and you're their father, you just believe them. You just do, you know. And so from that point on, I was going to be a great singer. Like I was just, there was tunnel vision. I just didn't think there there was anything else. I wanted to be a vet. I wanted to be a psychologist, but I had to be a great singer because that's what dad had decided and that was that. (laughs) And so it was was quite um, an interesting journey for me because he was, um, you know, a principal singer and he gave that up when my mother was pregnant with me. I was the second child and he decided to you know, take a steady job and not move around and, you know, enjoy his family. And he was, he had a great career as a teacher and won many awards. And I was the singer, like I had to be the opera singer. And and I, I think like in my early 20s, I punished him a lot. You know, like I didn't tell him. I remember one time I got into Operalia and he'd received the an email and he called me and I was at work and he was all excited. He was like, you're in Operalia, you're going to Paris. And I was like, dad is it urgent because i'm working if it's not i'm in the print room right now and i have to finish my, my work i'll talk about it at home <laughs> like i just did not include or enjoy like it was just like whatever so i'm in opera like i just didn't really care and um then at one point i it was all taken away from me i was already in europe i was or i'd finished the the stint in rome and i was you know in living in rome studying privately trying to get a job unsuccessfully and uh and i had a really bad health issue and i couldn't walk for for months and i had to be in a back brace and my dad came over and he you know he took me out of the hospital where i was where they wanted to operate and i didn't want to be operated and he um took me back to the place i was living in and stayed with me for about a month until i could be more independent like i couldn't do it, my shoes i couldn't do anything and i remember at that point he said to me you know what you've tried everything you've worked you've lived without a house you've you've you know struggled and everything and, and this whole situation um you've really done everything you can and I won't hold it against you. If you want to give up and come back now, you can come back. And I, I won't think you didn't try. And I was furious with him. I was like, this is not the time to tell me to stop. (laughs) (laughs) And so that was it. I was like back on track. (laughs) He probably did it on purpose. You know, he used to lock the piano when I didn't practice.
0: (laughs) I'm sure he's your biggest fan.
1: He certainly is. Although he, he does have a competitor in my, my uh, father-in-law. He's also quite, quite fond. He has, he has cinema nights with his friends and like shows me I'm sorry to his friends, <laughs> a bit like my dad does.
0: <laughs> very proud. You, yeah. You've studied with a, um, a series of singing teachers, I imagine, throughout your career. <laughs> yeah. what, what is it that the, that the great singing teachers do very well?
1: um well my dad is actually my main singing teacher and still is today we work on skype and um he's always the one that can fix me you know like even whoever i'm studying with at the time because i you know work with lots of people he's always the person i come back to and say you know it's not working fix it um and i think what he does is he looks at everybody individually and it's what i learned also from him in my teaching is that i look at a student and you know, I might say in a masterclass, I might say to a student, you know, do this or do that. And then I'll have to say to this student here, don't listen. This is not good for your voice. This is not good for your voice. So I think great teachers treat people as individuals because we have different physicalities and it is the more I go ahead, the more I really don't think it's a one size fits all. There are certain techniques that need to be applied The The breath needs to be fundamental. The position of the voice needs to be high and in the mask, but how you get there there are so many paths and I think it's, it's important to be open. And one of the reasons I wanted to start teaching younger was because I wanted to remember how frustrated I was with my teachers, including my father, especially my father. I had massive fights with my father. I still do, I'm still petulant with him when, when I study, <laughs> but then every now and then I'll call him up after a lesson that I've given to someone. I'll be like, yeah, dad, I'm really sorry about that. You were right. <laughs> now i'm getting it from the other end <laughs>
0: <laughs> is there an age where it is good for a voice to start having lessons or can you be any age i mean you know, yes. talking children no
1: i think for opera lessons i think you really need to be you need to have matured so even though you don't hear it female voices break as well so just like you wouldn't teach a choir boy who has a, a soprano voice to teach to sing operatically you wait for their voice to break, and then you work with that voice. It's the same with women. And I don't think you should really start until they're about you know, 18, 19, in my opinion, but I mean, some people start earlier, so. Yeah. It's just that if you, I think we're so um, malleable when, when we're younger that we don't develop our own individuality if we're taught vocally too young. We end up becoming just sort of a cookie cutter singer and not, not finding your own voice and bringing that out.
0: You've got a, a phenomenal, over 30 roles, I think, in your repertoire. How long does it take to prepare and learn a role?
1: <laughs> Do you want the real answer? <laughs> a few weeks. <laughs> Sometimes a few days.
2: <laughs>
1: um, depending on the circumstances. Um I think I couldn't actually say what well, I have to do, no matter what the situation, if they say to me, you have to debut Zebonette in three weeks, or if I have five months, it's the same process. I just have to go very slowly through the role and convince. if it's a short-term learn, because you know somebody's canceled and they need me to jump in and it's a rare opera, I've kind of become the go-to for that situation because they know that I can learn music quickly. Um, so, even if I only have a couple of weeks, I will try and make myself believe that I have six months. So I won't, the minute I get nervous, I can't learn music. The minute I try to learn music, I can't learn music. So I just basically just keep, you know, playing through it, like keeping my mind in the idea that we're just having fun. And then it just sinks in on its own. The music comes easier than the words. If it's French, I'm in trouble. If it's a few weeks, (laughs) if it's Italian, I'm fine.
0: Do you listen to other singers in the role, you know, for CDs or recordings? No, no never. never. You're, you're creating your own version.
1: Yes, absolutely. I, but I think that comes from the fact that when I started singing, my main repertoire was rare operas that had never been performed before, so there was no reference. And because that became my way of working, it didn't make sense to me even when I learned uh, La Fille de Rechimant or Traviata. I didn't learn. I didn't listen to the other Traviatas or Dordroth Regiments until I would learnt the role memorized it decided what i wanted to do and then i would go and listen because that way you're listening actively and not passively you know you've already looked at the music so if they're singing something different you know they're singing something different because it's not what you learned. and so you think you can then decide do i like it do i want to steal it and use it myself or do i want to leave it there if you start by listening you're going to pick up their their choices or their accidents without even knowing it it's just going to be subconscious and then you're going to actually spend more time getting rid of it because a lot of things singers think that it's a fast way of learning but it's actually not in the long in the long term it's slower
0: it must be a treat to return to a role like lucia over over many years and to refine and finesse the performance
1: i restudy it actually um i restudied it big time just before um uh, the, the COVID hit because I was going to do it with Pido in um, Sale actually and I made the, I'd written a new cadenza, we'd written new variations, we were going to do it all in the original tonalities which means the mad scene is a tone higher the first R is half a tone higher and also the the scene with Enrico I think is a tone higher, it might be half a tone, I can't remember now it's tone high. Um, and it's way better. I prefer it like that. So at my 100th Lucia, I started, I felt like I was in a position to tell people that I wanted to do it in the original tonalities. So I started insisting that everybody let me sing it in the original tonalities. Um, so, you know, sometimes I, I get them to do it, other times not, you know, they have to pay for the critical edition. It costs more money, so it's tricky. Um, but... It's nicer, I like it. <laughs> so yeah, I, I restudy it every time and there's always something new to learn. Also, as we grow and change, my interpretation of life and, and what's happening in these roles changes, you know, when you, as you get older, you lose people that, that are you know important to you and, and you start seeing things differently. So yeah, the roles are constantly changing. Yes.
0: What should have been your opening night routine, Jessica? Is there a ritual that you go through?
1: (laughs) Freaking out. (laughs) um, (laughs) I'm super nervous until I get into the theatre and then I'm perfectly fine. I'm like, hi, everybody. Everything's okay once I walk through the door. Until I get to the door, everything is not okay. Um, uh, So my poor husband has to deal with me and I'm quite a nightmare, I think. I, I don't... I just can't do anything. I just go into, I go do Lally, you know, I just, I can't concentrate. Like he, he, he goes, bear with me because I'll do something like half an hour before I have to leave for the theater, I'll decide I have to re-hem my skirt that I'm gonna wear that night in a concert, you know? And and he knows he has to let me hem it because if I don't hem it, it's not gonna be okay. <laughs> I'm just going, no, it's okay. we got time, we got time. And he's like, I'm getting nervous. We need to leave now. <laughs> But uh, yeah, my only my only rule is I do not go out from lunchtime the day before the show because I can't deal with the stress. I just can't. And the day of the show, I never go out because even being in a coffee shop at 11 o'clock in the morning and I want to pay the coffee and the person doesn't come. I'll start getting super nervous because I'm going to miss the show tonight because I can't pay my coffee at 1110. You know, so and I can't hold a conversation. So you know, people will often say, "Oh, why don't we see each other between the shows?" And I'm like, "You're not going to see me. You're going to see a zombie version of me." Yeah. And uh, so it's easy with my husband because I can, you know, he he can talk. Um, but if he's not here, no way. I just stay at home.
0: What are you looking forward to most with the Towers of Hoffman and, and presenting it at the Opera House?
1: Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I think um, right now I've only staged uh, Olympia, and I love the staging for Olympia so that's great and some of Antonia and that's looking good too so I don't know I'd have to see the whole whole thing before I know
0: because I think a,
1: it's beautiful
0: a new production of course and then uh, it's going off to Covent Garden
1: it is yes
0: how exciting mm-hmm. well I'm excited but I suppose you've been <laughs> Covent Garden before haven't you <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> oh yeah that, that, that old thing yeah yeah that
1: place. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I'm actually doing Hoffman in October as well in um, in Bilbao, and then I I do I'm, Hoffman is becoming my new luchero. I think I've got it twice a year for the next I don't know how many years. So yeah, I'm gonna have to get comfortable with it.
0: <laughs> well, Jessica, thank you so much for this conversation over the past hour. Um, it's been absolutely brilliant to to meet you and and have this chat and a few laughs and uh, and chookers for uh, the towers of Hoffman. It's gonna thank be sensational. You. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed indeed. (laughs) Thanks, Jessica. Thank
1: you. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you to the team at Opera Australia for coordinating this conversation with Jessica Pratt. He's hoping that it is not too long before we can see the new production of Offenbach's The Tales of Hoffman. We send great love and support to everyone at Opera Australia. Hang in there. We look forward to nights at the opera once again when we can all convene. Thank you to Maestro Brian Castles Onion for providing the magnificent musical excerpts featured in this episode and to my very special guest, Jessica Pratt. It is always a pleasure to have your company. You can follow The Stages Podcast on our Instagram and Facebook socials and don't forget that you can find all of the episodes featured in the podcast thus far by visiting our website www.stagespodcast.com.au I'm Peter Ayers. Please keep well, keep warm. Stay safe, and I'll catch you next time.